Welcome back to Bitcoin Builders. Today, I am joined on the show by Kent Halliburton. Kent is the president and COO of SAS Mining, who describe themselves as a Bitcoin-native way to stack SAS. In this conversation, we talk about where their company came from, shifting trends in how people acquire Bitcoin, and why they decided to open a mining facility in Paraguay. Bitcoin Builders is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator to focus exclusively on Bitcoin and Lightning, and they just opened up applications for their third cohort. Go to wolfnyc.com to learn more and apply. It's Tuesday, July 18th. This is Bitcoin Builders. Let's go. All right, Kent, welcome to Bitcoin Builders. How are you doing, sir? Excellent. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be a really good conversation. You know, one of the things that I love about doing this show is nominally it's about companies and Bitcoin builders and what they're doing. But I think obviously, you know, underneath that are big patterns and trends that are really interesting to explore, even outside of the specific context of the companies that that we're exploring the lens through. And and I think that you guys are a great example of that. But to kick us off, tell us a little bit about SAS mining and what you guys do, and then maybe we'll can intersect your story with that as well. Yeah, so um, SAS mining, you know, it's taken us a, a little while as an early stage, a fairly early stage startup to to figure out what our product market fit is. But I think we've realized that really we're offering a Bitcoin native approach to acquiring your Bitcoin through the process of mining, right? I mean, that is the, the way Satoshi laid out the distribution of Bitcoin to occur is by people mining it. And I think to date, that experience has not been very intuitive or easy to navigate. And we think at SAS Mining that if we can make that easy enough and simple enough for the average person to access, that we can unlock a huge market segment, you know, sort of akin to how Uber unlocked the uh, the rideshare industry. And I think what's really interesting and, and topical for me is I just recently came across the data points about how much Bitcoin is available on exchanges right now. And it turns out it's something like 1.9 million. And how much Bitcoin is available through mining through 2140, of course, is about 1.6 million. And I'm curious to see if in the years ahead that we don't see more people gravitate towards mining to acquire their Bitcoin. But as far as where my story intersects, I like to think of Bitcoin mining as my uh, my second career. My first was in rooftop solar, and we were talking a little bit before the the show started about us both living in in San Francisco during a similar time frame. And it was there that I I operated a sales and software team for a publicly traded rooftop solar company and learned a lot about construction electrical engineering and what it takes to set proper customer expectations. So I think it's a it's interesting to see how that winds up being a, a real perfect match actually for driving a company that's offering a similar uh, sort of opportunity for the uh, the average person to acquire Bitcoin. Let's actually stay on on you for just a moment given that that sort of career trajectory. Maybe let's ask the standard question of how you discovered Bitcoin, but maybe with a little bit of flair of what were your impressions initially of the environmental profile? Was that something you were thinking about? And sort of, you know, the TLDR of this is obviously, you know, moving from rooftop solar to Bitcoin is, I think, for people who are in the know in this space, makes a lot of sense. For people who are on the outside, might make the opposite of sense, right? It's not a very intuitive thing from the outside. And I, I think it happened very organically for me. So I had a, a a sabbatical couple of years in between my rooftop solar experience and getting into Bitcoin mining. 
And I discovered Bitcoin during that time frame. So this is late 2015, early 2016. And I was just totally enamored by it, but enamored by it from a unique perspective, which is looking at it from like a human empowerment and freedom perspective, which is how I felt when I was in the rooftop solar space. You know, it's rooftop solar has become very like ESG driven. But when I got into rooftop solar in 2005, it was very much about empowering individuals to be able to generate their own electricity. And that sort of empowerment theme was what I felt getting into Bitcoin, being able to transact outside the banking system and be able to move value, you know, without any sort of censorship or restraint. And that got me interested. And I was not thinking about the environmental impacts of Bitcoin mining until about 2018, when I realized that the cost curves for solar were going to intersect in a pretty spectacular way with uh, Bitcoin mining. You know, the lower the price of electricity, the more profitable it is to mine on that energy source. And solar was quickly becoming the cheapest electricity source. And I know that there's problems that occur with Bitcoin mining on solar. And so that's not my point here. It's just cheap energy is what Bitcoin mining wants. And I was reading Jeff Booth's The Price of Tomorrow, and he lays it out spectacularly in the fifth chapter about how solar and Bitcoin mining are going to collide. And I just realized, hey, I've got to be in on this uh, with both feet. So Will, the founder of, of SAS Mining, was on a podcast. I happened to listen to it, a solar podcast, and I knew the host, and the host put us in touch, and one thing led to another, and here we are. Amazing. So let's intersect then with the SAS Mining story a little bit. You know, you kind of gave the, the, the very high-level overview, but let's talk a little bit more about what it does, what its ambition is, and you know where the company is. And maybe one thing to sort of add into this mix is terminology, and the terminology that you guys prefer to use because you know something that you guys have been clear about is uh i think you tweeted on july 5th reminder cloud mining does not equal hosted mining so let's talk a little bit more about SaaS, what you guys do and and really what the ambition behind it is at SaaS mining we got into this space and we saw that there is a pretty bad reputational shadow overhanging the space a lot of people have been abused to be quite honest with you with their experiences of just trying to mine bitcoin if you're a typical homeowner and you want to mine Bitcoin, it's very hard to do at home in a way that accesses cheap enough electricity. Now, I know that there's a great home mining movement and I wish it all the best, but for a lot of folks you know, that are paying rates that are 40 cents plus uh, per kilowatt hour, it's really not accessible to do mining at home. And so we set out to make that accessible for people and to solve the reputational side by creating a better user experience. So we first set out to find a great designer. We raised some seed capital. This was late 2021. And we looked for the best design firm that we could find to create a different user experience. And we think we've delivered on that pretty well because we really don't hear from our customers too much. It seems like the uh, information we're delivering is meeting their needs. But really what we want to do is to create that experience in such a way that it's easy and intuitive for people. So what you'll see with our purchase flow is we pre-select the mining rigs. So two of the most popular models, one is the most efficient in the industry right now, the uh, the XP, we call that like the BMW versus like the uh, the most rugged and durable, which is the What's Miner M30, which is efficient in its own right, but think of it more like a Toyota Corolla, you know, just going to get the job done day in and day out. 
And so just trying to think through these design decisions so that people, when they go through, they have their typical purchase options that they're used to, and then leaves us in a position to serve up the information, you know, make sure that their mining rigs are are running properly, but also we're non-custodial and we only mine off of carbon-free power. So both of those sort of keep us on the moral high ground because we don't then need to collect any customer identifying information, save just to contact our customers. And then the last thing that we do is that we align our incentives so that we share the same risk and reward as our customers. So we price ourselves so that we're not making money on the front end with rigs or a margin with our rigs or with our hosting costs for the service we provide. Instead, we instruct the mining pool to distribute the rewards, 85% to our customers' wallet, 15% to ours. So we never touch people's Bitcoin, but we're aligned with what they're trying to accomplish, which is receive Bitcoin into their wallet. Amazing. So uh, you you kind of just started to get into something that I, I wanted to ask further about, but Maybe just to to really put a fine point on it, I would love to have you explain how the non-custodial nature of it works logistically, right? So a customer comes to you and then from there, what happens? Yeah, so this this is one of the trade-offs that has to be made working with us, which is in order to provide this this type of business model, we do have to integrate pretty deeply with the mining pool. So we've integrated with Luxor. We will be offering more mining pool options in the future, but right now it is just Luxor mining pool that we offer. But what we do is we have an API integration with their pool and we instruct Luxor to separate the rewards. So it's actually sent directly from the mining pool to the customer, but those rewards are split before they're sent so that we receive our portion and the customer receives the bulk of it. Makes sense. And so you said that the, you you tap into the Luxor mining pool and you know potentially you have other partners in the future, but then you guys are also working on your own facilities as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So we uh, find local operators. Our first facility was in Wisconsin. It's a little more than a megawatt worth of uh, hydro power off of a dam that was built in the late 1920s, I believe. So been running for a little bit more than 100 years and just a phenomenal, beautiful facility. But we've got local hands that manage the operations and we remotely monitor and manage everything and ensure that, you know, if there's a part that needs to be replaced, we, we take care of that. And that's all covered with our fee structure. But our second facility is being developed and built right now as we speak, and it'll be operational about the 15th of September. And it's in Paraguay. You know, I'm sure you've got some questions about why we chose to go to Paraguay, but I think part of it was the context of the environment when we made that decision, which was about three to four months ago. And in that environment, you know, Dame was coming down the pipe, Pike, which was going to charge a 30% fee on electricity for mining. There was the legislation going on in Texas, legislation going on in New York. And we just said, look, the environment is looking kind of ugly right now in the U.S. There's much lower rights that can be accessed in Paraguay right now. And they're exporting an absurd amount of electricity to Brazil at a loss. So there's an inherent incentive for them to want to sell us electricity. Let's see what we can find there. And I live in Latin America. My Bitcoin operations manager has lived in the past for seven years in Chile. We've got uh, our support staff are in Lima. So it's a strength that we can lean into our Latin American connections to be able to deliver on a facility like that. And we said, you know, because we're in a unique position to deliver on this, let's go for it. 
So I would love to hear more about what that process has been like, because Paraguay, so when El Salvador made their announcement, Paraguay was one of the first other Latin American countries to pop up as a potential additional home for all the reasons you just listed. Now, initially, you'll probably remember that weekend, there was so many rumors that, you know, people were going to do the same thing and, and kind of make Bitcoin legal tender. And it turned out that what Paraguay was working on was actually more uh, a, a sort of a bill to make mining work in the context of the country. But how has the reality of working there and setting up on the ground been? How have you found the local administrations and politicians? Has it you know been outside of the sort of normal challenges of, of you know working across any cross-border context? What has the experience been like? Have the challenges been the same that you anticipated or, or different? So I think some were new and some, some were anticipated. I mean, one of the things that's really key in Latin America in general is just finding the right relationships. And I know relationships are important everywhere, but who you know in Latin America can, can really cause things to move quickly or slowly. And, you know, we've been grateful at finding some some good partners on the ground there that have helped. But I think from a 30,000 foot view, Paraguay exports, their major export is electricity, right? So there's an inherent incentive for them as a country to be able to figure out how to monetize that. And, you know, they sell a, a good chunk of their electricity off the Itapu Dam at a loss to Brazil. So if we can turn that liability into an asset, it helps everybody. And I mean, to be specific there, there's a lot of government officials right now that are mining Bitcoin and have their own unique operations in place. And so when you look at that, that setup of incentives, it makes it so that it seems unlikely to us that there would be a political backlash. You know, they're, they're losing money on a resource that they can make money on. And, you know, for us feels like a very comfortable place to be able to go. I'm very excited to see how it actually plays out in practice and uh, and glad that you guys are trying it. So I wanted to circle back to the question of energy mix. You said that you guys are 100% carbon free. Uh, tell us a little bit more about, about what that means and how you guys came to that conclusion and how it fits the broader perspective that you guys have. Yeah, carbon free. So first of all, my background and, and personal mission has been to really focus on trying to dedicate my career to harmonizing humanity's relationship with the planet that led to my work in rooftop solar. And now here at SAS Mining, it, it really allows us to take the moral high ground to have carbon-free electricity powering our facilities. And it's just a blessing that the Paraguayan electrical grid is about 100% um, hydroelectric driven. And what that means is if you, if you look at the amount of power they generate versus what they use, there's about five gigawatts of excess electricity that's being exported and sold, not just to Brazil, but to Argentina as well. And that five gigawatts of electricity, just to put it in perspective, Cambridge Analytics, which provides data on, on the power side of the Bitcoin network, estimates that we use about 15 gigawatts worth of power right now to power the uh, the Bitcoin network. Now, I know that there's some question about Cambridge and, and how accurate their data is. And Daniel Batten's doing a lot of good work there to, to flush that out. But if we just take that at face value, that means that about a third of the network's power right now could eventually end up in Paraguay if it operates at a lower cost. And I think that that's a pretty interesting data point because it tells me that there's an opportunity for it to become really like the next Texas. 
Now, whether it does or not is an open question, but I think that the recipe is there right now. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated to lightning. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and lightning. The program is designed to help early stage startups achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early stage funding, and grow businesses that fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. Learn more or apply at wolfnyc.com. That's wolfnyc.com. And now back to the show. So this is a little bit of a shift, but one of the things that you mentioned, speaking of Texas and just speaking of sort of the decision to, to go to Paraguay, is that as you were finalizing that decision, we were sort of peak anxiety around mining futures based on, you know, Texas was having a, a legal battle around whether subsidies were going to be rolled back. We had Dame proposed and more broadly, the, there was sort of a lot going on in DC that was pretty antagonistic. How have things changed? And, you know, sitting where you are now, how much does it feel like as you think about future expansion, obviously, assuming things go well, you're going to be looking towards the US or elsewhere? Or is it, you know, I, I mean, even how much is that construct valuable of sort of the US versus not? I think it is valuable. You know, there was really two reasons why we chose Paraguay. The first was jurisdictional risk in the US, which has abated uh, to a large degree, thankfully. And it's it's what we thought would actually occur. But we also chose Paraguay because of price. You know, we're able to offer a rate of about 4.7 cents per kilowatt hour to our client base, which is almost half of the price that a lot of folks are able to find right now in the U.S. And we thought the combination of the two was stellar. Now, the jurisdictional risk issue, I think, is important for a business like ours. Like, Thankfully, we are a, a remote business, and we can choose where our operations are by finding great partners. But I think that for our business model, being geographically diversified does make some sense. I think it was a bit early, frankly, for us to, to choose to go to Paraguay. But with the negative environment that we were in for Bitcoin mining, it made sense. And I, I think that the price uh, point at which we're able to offer our services will continue to, to support that decision. But I think in the future, we are definitely open to being back you know, with our third facility in the U.S., if we can find a, uh, a suitable partner and opportunity. Is there a challenge with sort of the approach to being non-custodial with U.S. regulatory apparatus, or is that a TBD as things get figured out right now? You know, from my understanding, we did a deep dive on that when we um, went through, this was late 2021, when we decided we were going to deliver this this business model to the market. And we had all sorts of lawyers look it up and down and said, no, you guys can't be classified as a security because you're basically selling hardware. Should things change, that fact may change for us as well. Uh, but as it stands right now, we don't worry about it too much because we've done our due diligence. And in fact, selling hardware and providing you know electrical service to it doesn't really fall under any one jurisdiction. And we're not transmitting any cryptocurrency. So there's no money transmitter laws that, that apply as is. But I will be interested to see what occurs as the regulatory apparatus comes to understand Bitcoin mining a bit better. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the optimistic take is that regulators who are engaging in good faith, I think you guys are a great example of the type of thing that makes clear how it's operating slightly differently, you know, in, in ways that people can understand. And we have seen, I think, some evidence of folks who start to grok it in Washington actually dig in and understand that the sort of network of players, you can't map the traditional intermediary relationships from traditional finance onto it precisely, at least, you know? Yeah, 100%. I I think it's, it took me even a long time to get my head around the fact that the counterparty in our business model, instead of it being a customer, is a protocol, right? Like that is what is paying the reward to the customers and to us. And how you get used to, as a regulatory body, a protocol being the deliverer of the reward, I think that's going to take some time. It's really a zero to one invention uh, that we're dealing with here. And I think you've got to come up with innovative regulation to deal with it. I want to move to a little bit more of sort of the customer side. And you know, some of this may be more anecdotal than precise because of the sort of lack of information you collect. But do you have a sense of who your average customer is? Are they new Bitcoiners, old Bitcoiners? Is it diversification for people who have acquired Bitcoin elsewhere? And maybe also, how has that profile changed uh, over time? I would say there's two groups that we're servicing right now. So to be fair, I think that this will change during the different price cycles of the, the Bitcoin. You know, the Bitcoin cycle is going to change things. When we're a bull market, I expect this to be different. But thus far, since we really kicked off our operations at the beginning of the year, we've seen Bitcoin curious folks and existing Bitcoin miners become our biggest customer base. And so the existing Bitcoin miner, whether they're having a rough experience elsewhere or want to diversify their holdings amongst multiple companies, that's one subset. And then the other subset is the the Bitcoin mining curious. And, and those folks generally, what we've seen, will purchase like a single mining rig, sort of test the waters, make sure everything works as advertised, and then add on additional mining rigs. So it's been really interesting to see who has shown up at our doorstep right now. But I think one of the the most interesting groups that I've been watching that seems adjacent, and they've been really kicking the tires, is like the real estate market. Because the the difference with Bitcoin mining versus purchasing off of an exchange is that you own an instrument, right? This this piece of hardware. And that piece of hardware fluctuates in value. And a lot of times people just look at the cash flow with Bitcoin mining and, and sort of leave the hardware value off to the side. But when you incorporate that into the into the conversation, it's very much like purchasing a piece of property and then renting it out. And so I think that that natural understanding is going to lead to a lot of real estate investors actually coming into the Bitcoin mining space in the in the bull market. You guys had a tweet, uh, again, uh, I think it was you actually specifically, at the beginning of July, that had sort of a five-part list of why customers mine. Profitability, no exchange risk, price volatility risk, not identifying sats, and uh, they own a Bitcoin printer they plan to profit from. But I would love for you to go in just a little bit more detail to what you have found the biggest motivations around sort of you know individual participation in Bitcoin mining to be. Yeah, I, I think a good data point that we've discovered is if you look at the hash rate differential between the beginning of 2022 and the end, it suggests that at least $5 billion worth of capital was deployed into Bitcoin mining. And to me, that's a very clear and objective market signal that it is a more efficient way for people to acquire Bitcoin than going to an exchange. 
that $5 million could have gone through the exchanges, but it chose to go uh, into mining. And I think that that understanding uh, is is underlying those five reasons that I laid out um, in that tweet you mentioned. But, you know, I think that the DCA strategy is part that is not totally intuitive to people, but you purchase your mining rig, let's say it's $2,000. And for the next four to six years, you're able to reap sats from that investment. And those sats are coming without any identifying information. And because your purchase has already been made, there's no price volatility risk that you have to absorb. You know, it's not like you're clicking the buy button on an exchange and then worrying about what the price does afterwards and whether you're underwater or not. So I think it it also creates that ease of mind that comes with uh, the DCA strategy. And because we're selling hardware, we're not collecting all that identifying information that can become a honeypot uh, that has become a, a risk for people using exchanges as well. So a lot of the risks that are inherent with the exchanges, and we've heard directly from customers that you know there's more fear about using an exchange with everything that's gone on with Coinbase, Binance, FTX in the last year. So we're sort of short-circuiting all of that and just creating this native approach for folks to acquire Bitcoin. And I think as people wake up to that, it's actually the more desirable approach. Yeah, I I certainly think that there is a big narrative shift there and not even really so much a a narrative shift. I think it's something that hasn't been uh, just popular. There haven't been people to sort of tell that story in a way that that actually makes it accessibility or makes it accessible. You know, so you've sort of had a gap from a marketing or, or kind of storytelling standpoint, as well as a you know a, a potential gap in the the market for uh, of services as well. A hundred percent, you know, and and this is I think back to my experience in rooftop solar when I when I got into the rooftop solar industry in two thousand five, there was a lot of technicians that were selling rooftop solar systems to people, and there was a shift that the market went through, the industry went through in around two thousand and ten. So where a whole new narrative and language set got used, and it better met the market where it was. And when that happened, rooftop solar really exploded. And I think that there's a similar inflection point that our industry is going through. And maybe maybe the discuss, uh, the descriptions that I'm using today don't totally resonate yet, but I think they're going to. I think that we're going to be talking about mining with a whole different language set in the future. In fact, I'm not even going to be surprised if instead of talking about ASICs or mining rigs, we start just talking about Bitcoin printers, because in essence, that is what they are. They're printing Bitcoin for people. Yeah. I think that the obviousness of mining for your as your DCA alternative to working with an exchange where you're taking on an exchange risk is something that's likely to be really resonant after the the cycle we've just come through. But speaking of cycles, what is your sense, maybe you personally, but you guys internally as well, of where we are in the cycle? And how does that play into how you think about your own strategy? Yeah, I am. I think, like Pete Rizzo says, a uh, a Bitcoin cycle maximalist. Haven't been around since late 2015. I place my full belief that the cycles just continue. I don't know why. I don't understand it. But uh, if that is the case, and it's where my belief is, that means that that 2024 will be the the year that we really see the bull market start and take off. So what we see right now is this is still the bear market. It's time to build. Yeah, we've had good price appreciation since the beginning of the year. Don't know if that's going to if the price is going to come back. Um but, you know, we're not really prepared for the bull market or we're not preparing for the bull market to occur until sometime next year. 
right now when it comes to that customer base, you know, it sounds like it's more people who are already in the space. Do you anticipate, or maybe ask, let me ask it as a different type of question. How do you think about getting new entrants into the market to think about this as an alternative to acquiring Bitcoin from exchanges or, or something like that? I think that we're going to have that conversation occur more in the bull market. Right now, you know, the people that are in the are circling around our product are more interested in it from like a, a mining perspective and, and have a lot of preconceived ideas around that. But I do think that we're going to see an opportunity to shift like real estate investors mindset into our space because a lot of people have been wanting to get that one to 5% of their liquid net worth allocated toward Bitcoin. I still think that that has not occurred in a large way. And so if you think through like your typical real estate investor, um, how they're going to take one to 5% of their liquid net worth and, and put it into Bitcoin mining or put it into Bitcoin, it seems obvious to me that they're going to choose if they can find a viable and, and accessible option to do it through mining. It's just more intuitive for them. What does the next three to six months look like for you guys? What are, what are the big priorities? What are the big challenges? And what are you most excited about? I think that the, the big priority and challenge is just scaling and, and delivering on our Paraguay opportunity. We've slated ourselves exactly that, that time frame, three to six months to complete that. And once we complete that, I think the sky is really the limit for our business model because our MVP was delivered in the, the depths of the bear market here in Q1. Uh, and that gave us some legitimacy. And so to be able to double down on that legitimacy by delivering in Paraguay, you know, is, is going to really raise eyes and I think help us uh, cast off that reputational shadow that's been overhanging the industry. I mean, I can't tell you how many times uh, we were accused of being a scam uh, when we first set out because there's been so many scams in the play, in the in the space uh, and so you know we really have to continue to to execute on our uh, for customers and keep our reputation high to avoid um, being pulled into that that reputational issue amazing Kent well I'm super excited to see how it all plays out in Paraguay I'm very glad that you guys are are, are down there kind of building and uh, we'll have to check in in a little bit as that comes online and we see how it goes. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you here today, Nathaniel. Keep up the good work. I uh, I listen to your podcast daily and and uh, look forward to it showing up in my podcast feed. Cheers, Ken. All right, guys, back to NLW for just a quick wrap up. We talked a little bit about this on the show. And at the risk of this sounding too much like a SAS mining pitch, I really do think that if you took the average person who is coming into Bitcoin and getting excited about the values that underlie it, the idea of self-sovereignty, the idea of an alternative from the intermediaries of the existing financial system, and you told them that they had two good choices for how to acquire Bitcoin as part of their dollar cost averaging or weekly buys or whatever it was. If you told them that one, they could use a centralized exchange, which would be great from a user interface standpoint, simple, fast, and easy. Or, on the other hand, they could acquire Bitcoin by participating in mining, securing the network, not having counterparty risk in the same way, and generally more active participation in the Bitcoin network. Net-net, I think a lot of people would choose that second option. That is, of course, if there was at least basic UI parity between those different experiences. Now, of course, some people want a custodial option. They like that Bitcoin has those values, but ultimately they're at the part of their journey where that's just not what they want to prioritize. 
Still, I think it's cool that there could be a different path, and that as we head towards the next cycle, there are companies out there who are exploring providing exactly that. Anyways, one more big thank you to Kent for joining the show. Of course, another big thank you to my sponsor in Wolf's Clothing. Don't forget, guys, Wolf has just opened up their third cohort application. And I tell you what, I can't wait to tell you more about the awesome companies that are in cohort two. You can find more information about that at wolfnyc.com and even apply. And finally, thanks to you guys for listening. Until next time, let's build. Let's build.